Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and UpRocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. We have a big, big show today. This is a guest that I've been trying to get for a while, and I'm excited that it happened, and I'm excited that it turned out so well. This was a really great interview with Adam Duritz from Counting Crows, a band that I have loved for a long time, a band that has gone through many different stages of success and critical esteem and sort of mainstream recognition. And yet, here we are 25 years later still talking about their records because their records are really good. They hold up. Duritz has written a lot of really great songs that people still care about today. And I was excited to talk to him about it. You know, because I, I've talked to him a couple times before, I actually just once before in 2012. And that was a, a fascinating conversation. I don't know how much you know about Adam Duritz. I think he's a very sort of iconic figure in 90s rock. You may know him from Mr. Jones. You may know him from the song Round Here. You may know him as the guy with the dreadlocks who dated a couple of different cast members from Friends. You may know him as the guy who like is always at Golden State Warriors games. <laughs> he's had a second life uh, in that respect. One of the very kind of serious aspects of him as a person in, in his art is his history of mel- mental illness. Uh, and he's talked about that very openly in the past, and you can see it manifested in the songs that he writes, in the, in the sensitivity of the songs that he writes, and, and not the sort of like glamorous sensitivity, the kind of sensitivity that you want to wallow in. It's the real sort of sensitivity, the real emotionalism, the the kind of feeling that when you're so deep in despair that you're covered in spittle because you're crying so hard, the, the, the kind of emotionalism that gets a little bit ugly sometimes if you see it in person or you hear it in a song, that's sort of direct statements of anguish. That's what you get in a lot of Adam Durrett songs. And when I talked to him in 2012, the pain that he goes through in his personal life, it was very much apparent. Uh, he was in the process of weaning himself off from, from many different kinds of medications that he was under. And he was a very great interview, and he had a lot of great things to say, but my sense of him at that time was that he was not feeling very happy at that moment in time. So when I talked to him for the podcast, and this interview happened uh, in June, I was very pleasantly surprised to find that he was in in, in great spirits. And, uh, you know, he was in a... Uh, sort of a, a meditative mood, perhaps, because Counting Crows, they're going to be going on a tour uh, this summer into the fall. It's the 25 Years in Counting tour. Actually, I believe that tour will have already launched by the time this podcast runs. And he was game to talk about the band's entire career, his approach as a songwriter. And what I was most struck by was his self-awareness and his candidness talking about the arc of Counting Crow's career. You know, you sense in this interview, I think, that he has some misgivings about how huge this band became in the 90s. And if you've forgotten, I mean, Counting Crow's really was one of the biggest bands in the world at their peak. 
August and Everything After, their first record, that sold 7 million copies. You know, and it spawned that song, Mr. Jones, which to this day is played on the radio all the time. You know, they were definitely a band that, if you were paying attention at all to music at the time, you had to have an opinion about. Because you either loved them or you were super irritated that this band was constantly being shoved into your face, you know? And he talks in this interview about how he feels that that sort of set the tone for the rest of the band's career, that while they've had a really nice career in terms of, you know, still being able to tour and and, and sell a lot of tickets, and they have a a very strong, committed fan base, and they've put out a series of records that are really great and have been well-received by their fans, there's also this sense that from the beginning that this was not a cool band, that if you wanted to take shots at them, that it would be very easy to do so. And when you talk to him, you you sense a little bit of sort of disbelief that that happened, a little bit of sorrow that that happened, but ultimately acceptance. You know, he, to me, it, it was so nice to talk to him this time because unlike that first conversation we had uh, in 2012, I felt like this was a guy who seemed at least a little bit more comfortable in his own skin. So if you're a fan of the band, I think you're going to love this this podcast. We talk a lot about classic songs that he's written. He kind of delves into the stories behind a lot of those tunes. If you're not a fan or you're sort of skeptical, I really think that this will cause you to sort of reassess your feelings about this band. Because even if you're not into the songs, um, I think this guy's heart is in the right place. I think he's doing it for the right reasons. And uh, I'm glad that they've survived and that they're going to continue to survive, hopefully for the years to come. So without further ado, here is me and Adam Duritz from Counting Crows on the Celebration Rock Podcast. I feel like I should congratulate you at the beginning here. On, I'm, a, I'm a few weeks late, but on the Golden State Warriors winning the third champion in, championship in four years. I, I feel like you've become like the Jack Nicholson of the Golden State Warriors in the last several years. <laughs> well, I mean, I've been a fan for a long time. That's my, uh, I mean, I grew up in Oakland. Yeah. So... That was always, I mean, I, I, when I was a little kid, I lived in, in Boston, and then we moved to Oakland when I was about 10, so that's like 74, uh, and I loved the Warriors all that time, um, and the Celtics. Uh, and then, you know, Steve Kerr used to come to a lot of, I've known Steve for a long time, because he used to come to gigs when he was a player uh, years ago, and he's the nicest guy in the world, and it's just, uh, I have friends who know a lot of guys on the Warriors, so there was a lot of ties to um, I, I just, it's a pleasure. I, I just love that team. I love the guys on the team. I love the coaching staff. They're just, they're all really cool people. Uh, it's so, I, I'm just like, I'm just so lucky to get to hang out sometimes. <laughs> I think it's the coolest thing. Well, I, mean, I was going to say, I mean, because you've been a fan for a long time, so you had to, you know, endure a lot of seasons where they weren't any good, but, you know, now they're like, you know, one of the greatest teams ever. It feels like the mood is changing a little bit with the rest of the country where, you know, now people are looking at them almost like the New England Patriots of the NBA, like where, well, this is the team we're going to cheer against because they're so good. I mean, is that weird as a fan to experience that shift? Yeah, but I think that's more a journalist thing than it is a public thing. And that will turn into a public thing. But Steph's still the most popular jersey out there. Right. So it can't be like everybody hates him. And whenever I go to games in other cities, like, is so many people in Warriors jerseys, especially, just love Steph. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, to me, they're still like, 
they're the most homegrown team. I mean, I was looking at when we were at that last game, I had a, a roster card that someone had given me for the two teams when we were at the, the final game in Cleveland. And I was just looking at the two rosters. Cleveland had like two guys on the team that they'd either drafted or brought up to the G League, and neither one of them played a lick during the entire finals. Golden State had like nine or ten guys out of out of like fifteen, or that's like maybe it's like eight guys, nine guys that they had drafted or brought up from the G League. Yeah, that's pretty much a homegrown team, and no no number one draft picks, just like was it, a seven or eight for Steph, like eleven for Clay, thirty eight for Draymond. Something like that, 35 for Jordan Bell. They're all like, I just, they're, they're, yeah, I just think they're the coolest team. And they just, they play together more beautifully than any team I've seen since the Celtics and the Lakers when I was a kid. Right. That's great. You mentioned that you moved to the Bay Area when you were a teenager. I mean, were you already a music fan at that point? I mean, I'd imagine that living in an area like that would have been really great, you know, if you were a music fan already. Yeah, it was cool. I mean, when I first got out there, I was kind of too young to be taking advantage of any of that. Well, I was 10, maybe. You know, but after that, you know, as I got older, I mean, there was so much music, so many clubs, so many people playing, and so many good people playing, and so many places to see them, especially when I became a musician. It was a pretty great place to be one because there's no shortage back then of places to play, places to rehearse. I mean, I think that probably changed a lot when, you know, the dot-com thing blew up because all those empty warehouses and, like, where we all rehearsed turned into condos. I think, you know, people don't think of that. One of the things that happens when that kind of prosperity hits an area is that just a lot of the things that were part of the the underground or the bohemian segment of society – uh, there just isn't anywhere to do them. Like, it's not so much that there's no clubs. It's like, if you don't have a place to rehearse, you can't really have a band. You know, and I think that happened a lot, too. Right. And Friends of mine that stuck around told me they had a lot of troubles with that in those years. How old were you, like, when you first started, like, playing music and, and writing songs? Um, I was 18 when I wrote my first song, really, with music and everything. I, I was 18 years old. I was a freshman in college. And, uh, and I... I wasn't really in a serious band for a few more years. Probably I was 20, maybe 21 when I was in my first real band. And I mean, like what inspired you to take that leap from just listening to records to like wanting to make music yourself? Writing. Yeah. I mean, it was real simple. It was just the moment I wrote my first song that changed everything about my life. Yeah, You know, when you're a kid, you, you know, one of the hardest things to do is to define yourself and to figure out what you are, or what you want, and like what you're going to do, and whether the thing you're going to do is going to be a part of that self-definition, or is it just going to be something you do to earn money? You know, you, it takes a while to get that all figured out, but I knew that before most of my friends, because literally, I mean, I'm 18, I wrote one song, and I had this incredible sense of transformation, or just like, maybe not transformation, but like a transforming sense of sort of self-definition. I just, I was a songwriter. Yeah. I knew at the moment I finished the song that I was a songwriter and that had changed everything about my life. And the next day I, I knew I was going to come back in that. There was a lounge across the hall from my dorm room in college and it had a piano in it. And I had spent that whole day in there writing that first song. And I knew that I was going to be back there the next day to do it again. 
a different song. And, and every day after that for a while. Like, I don't write that often anymore, but back then I just, it was all I did every day. Do you remember what that first song was? Yeah, it was called Good Morning, Little Sister. It was about, you know, my sister was 15 or 16, and I had left for college, and my mother was in Mexico at medical school. And, uh, you know, Nicole, it's a hard time to be a girl when you're like 15 or 16. It's a real weird part of uh, growing up and doing it with when your mom's not around. It was harder for my sister. I think she missed me a lot, too. Um, and I had just been having a conversation about her. She was having a hard time, and I wrote a song about it. And it's a really simple song. Yeah. It would take me five minutes to write it now, but it <laughs> took me all day then. I mean, like, did you record it? Like, do you remember how it goes? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I know. I remember it. Kind of. I don't know that I remember the whole thing. Yeah. But I can remember basically how it goes and maybe the first verse. I mean, do you remember, like, when you wrote your first song that you felt like, okay, I could actually play this in front of people and maybe they would like it? Oh, I thought that then. I mean, it, it wasn't very good, but for <laughs> me, it was great. Yeah. And I just thought, I wasn't really embarrassed about any of that right then. I could see all the ways in which I've improved since then, and I could always see the ways in which I was improving. But I was always pretty proud about just what I had done so far, too. You know, I mean, I'm, I can, in retrospect, I can tell you now, I'm glad we didn't get a record contract until I was, you know, 28 or something. Right. I'm like 7-0, and 8-0. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, I feel really good about that. I might have some losses in that column if I had started earlier because I don't think I probably would have had some records that weren't very good. But at the time when I was doing them, I was just really proud of the progress I was making. You know, and I was in bands before Counting Crows that, no, they weren't as good as Counting Crows, but uh, they seemed great to me. And I was really excited about every show and really determined to get better. And I could also see what wasn't good enough, and I was really determined to get better. Yeah. I mean, but I could also see things that were really cool about each of them, you know, moments that were... Even when I look back on it now, there's some stuff in there. It's like, well, that's actually pretty cool. Right. You know? I mean, didn't you write Round Here fairly early on? No, not really early on. But, well, I was in three bands at the same time in the, like, early, nine, like, 90, 91. That period, I was in Counting Crows, I was in Sword of Humor, and I was in the Himalayans. And Round Here was a Himalayan song. Right. And then Counting Crows, that original version of Counting Crows, which was like 89, fell apart. And we sort of stopped playing together. And I was still in the other band. And Dave Bryson and I were still kind of playing some acoustic shows together, doing open mics and stuff, just, just to still stay playing together. And we started covering around here. We had a different version of it that was pretty cool. And then when we put another version of the band back together we recorded a version of Counting Crows, a version of Round Here. And then it kind of became part of our set. But it was a Himalayan song. And, uh, but not like, it wasn't from, I mean, I probably wrote that song in 1990 with the, with the guys in Himalayans, 90 or 91, and we started playing it in Counting Crows around 91, you know, maybe a year later. I mean, and it sounds like you always felt good about the songs you were writing, but when you wrote that song, did you feel like you had hit upon something new or different, like a higher level of songwriting? Um, no, but I thought it was really cool. <laughs> right. I mean, I thought it was a great song. We had a lot of stuff I thought was really cool in Himalayans. Himalayans was a really cool band. They were much more psychedelic and, like, noise-oriented and, you know... 
not really grunge, but it was a much uh, more guitar, electric guitar-oriented band than Counting Crows was at the beginning. Yeah. Um, I mean, Counting Crows now is very electric guitar-oriented, but it wasn't then. It right. wasn't until the second album that we really got, because Dan joined the band, and, and uh, Ben joined on drums, and we got to play the kind of rock and roll we just couldn't play at first. Right. Well, it's 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 interesting because uh, you know I haven't listened to the August and Everything After version of Round Here. I usually listen to like live versions of that song, and you know there's like so many different live versions of that, and that song goes to so many different places when you play it live. The original the, the version on the record sounds so austere and stripped back in comparison to like where you eventually took that song. That's the one thing about like I don't have. I'm really proud of all of our records. The one thing that, the only thing on any of the records really that, about half of the first album, it just feels very, uh, a little restrained and, and slick to me. Some of it, not necessarily around here. I, honestly, I haven't listened to around here in a long, long time. Uh, of that version, I've heard live versions, but um, it's funny how different songs are, especially from the stuff on that record. Yeah, um, We were, touring with uh rob thomas a couple of years ago and rob was you know we bring rob up on stage to sing some songs with us and he's like singing on rain king and he says you know can i do the bridge and i was like sure take the bridge you know and when he starts singing the bridge i remember i turned to emmy at one point and i said oh fuck that's how that goes you know i, I completely left behind any sense of this certain whatever this melody was you know without even thinking about it I, it just there were melodies in that song that i hadn't sung that way in I don't even know how long. You know, I'm just kind of thinking of melodies on my own, and I've gotten used to them, and I didn't even realize they weren't the ones from the record until Rob was singing that bridge, and I thought, oh, wow, that's how that goes. That is so different. That's a great melody. I should go back to that. <laughs> and I kind of did. Yeah. I'm, I'm covering Rob, covering me now. Yeah, right. Well, and, and Rob learned those songs in a Counting Crows cover band, basically. You know, that, that, that band he had, Tap at the, I can't remember what they're called, the band right before... Uh, Matchbox 20, they played a lot of covers, and half of the covers were Counting Crows songs. So he learned that covering us, whereas I learned it uh, purposely not covering us, you know? Well, and when you play that song live, too, a lot, a lot of times you'll, you'll sing, like, Thunder Road in the middle of that song, and it becomes this other thing. And it seems like a lot of the songs on that first record, you know, like Murder of One being another one, when you play them live, they get turned into these other things. I mean, when you play... The songs that way, do you know ahead of time, like, okay, I'm going to drop Thunder Road in the middle of this? Like, have you thought about that, or does it just kind of happen when you're on stage? No, I always plan to, like, think about it more ahead of time and come up with something cool to do, and I never do. I just, <laughs> it just sort of happens at that moment. Uh, the difference is on some of the ones when they're, that's with, the, like, the, the different songs being inserted in there. But when we're completely inventing new parts to the songs, often those will get uh, honed over time. You know, like, you come up with a new idea, and then the next night you do it a little better. Or it's not even that you do it better, it's that you just don't remember exactly how you did it the first time. And so it grows a little more the second time because you move it somewhere different, and then it goes a little different. And then after a little while, sometimes you actually get the parts written, and they, they stay, especially in round here. Uh, a lot of times over the years, I'm developing new ideas in the middle of that song. I mean, there's a whole section of that song that I was doing for a few years about, like, come, come outside, climb out your bedroom window, and 
those things that I was developing as an improv in the middle of round here became uh, a whole section in Palisades Park. Right. You know, that whole middle section of Palisades Park grew out of a, an improv I'd been doing in round here that I was like working on and expanding night after night after night. And then I turned it into something. It was an idea that I wanted to express about like getting out and running away uh, in, in these people's lives. And that sort of expression became part of a new song, which is kind of cool because Palisades Park in a way, it was me really trying to write in the body of a song, the kind of improvisation that we've been doing on stage that I'd never managed to capture on a record. I remember hearing a live version of a murder of one where it almost sounds like you're doing like a scat version of Goodnight Elizabeth. And this was like a couple of years oh, before yeah. recovering the satellites came out. I mean, was that another example of where you kind of came up with another song in the middle of a live improvisation? Well, I think I already have, I think that is from like the last show of August and everything after tours. I think we're maybe in Paris. Or right. And we already had, I wrote good night, Elizabeth, that's in that's late December, and I wrote Goodnight Elizabeth over Thanksgiving that year. The two songs that we had ahead of time for recovering the satellites that we were playing on the office of the after tours were uh, Children of Bloom first. Yeah. And then, uh, I'm sorry, I wrote Goodnight Elizabeth Thanksgiving the year before. It was during like the first few months of touring, like late 93 Thanksgiving, uh, on a break, I wrote Goodnight Elizabeth. And then... That's about a year later when we're in December in Paris and we're playing that last show. Um, but yeah, that's a song we already had and we've been playing it. Um, it was written for you know the next record, but I wrote it while we were on that long year and a half of touring for August. Okay. Uh, and I think I just stuck a different version of it in the middle of that song that night. That's like an endless version of that line. It's like 12 <laughs> minutes. It goes on fucking forever. Right, right. Um I wanted to ask you about this upcoming tour you're going to be doing, you know, the 25 Years and Counting tour. What is the plan for this? Are you going to be doing that thing, like, where you play albums in their entirety? Are you going to do, like, kind of like a retrospective set? Have you thought about it? Or is it just going to be, like, a different set list every night? Just a different set list every night. I mean, when I really thought about it, the best way to celebrate the 25 years, to me, was to play stuff from our entire career, you know, and to play songs from all over the catalog which is, you know, what we've been doing all along. Right. But it still seemed like the best way to celebrate 25 years was to uh, celebrate all of it. Right. I mean, what I wasn't you... that interested in just playing whole records. Right. Um, uh, so I think I also, I just, then you get a thing about like, August isn't my favorite record, but I understand that it is everyone else's or a lot of people's in any case. It's certainly the most popular by far, you know, so that's the one that people are going to want to hear. But, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to get into a thing like that. We're like, oh, we're just satisfied because we got, I didn't want an audience dissatisfied because I'm playing my favorite record, you know, like I'm playing Desert Life or Somewhere Under Wonderland, which is like albums I love from the, my head to my toes, you know, like, and, you know, I just didn't want to get into that. It's just too much, you know, we're always... Somebody leaves our concerts dissatisfied every night because, you know, we're not, we're almost certainly not playing something you want. We've got too many songs to be making everybody happy. Right. You know, remember playing, you know, we've got 80 plus songs in repertory. So like, 
you know, it's a lot of different stuff every night. But someone's unhappy every night, for sure. You know, cause, <laughs> you know we just can't play it all. And uh, I didn't want to, like, act in the whole album thing. I mean... I was listening to August before talking to you, and this this uh, comparison came to mind, and I was wondering what you thought of it. it. In a way, that record reminds me almost of like the first Pearl Jam record, and that that record also sold a million copies. It had like, or tens of millions of copies. It spawned up all these hit songs, that songs that people know. But in a way, that was the record where they were learning how to become the band that they would become. And when you hear verses in Vitology, that kind of more sounds like the Pearl Jam that they actually are, rather than this band that was just kind of first coming together. And I feel like there's a similar thing with your records where if you listen to Recovering the Satellites and This Desert Life and so on, that sounds like more of a band working on those records, whereas the first record is, is great, the songs are great, but you can tell that you guys are kind of figuring out, okay, who are we going to be on this record? Does, does that make sense to you, like that comparison? I also feel like August is, yeah, I think it makes total sense, because August to me is the only record where... We're limited by what we can do at that point. Like, we can only, we're learning to be a band, and, you know, just that was hard at that point, you know, and I think that album's really good. And we really changed our band a lot to get to that point, just to get to that point, forgetting the changes that came after. But just to get to there was a huge change from the way we were before. Because I think our band sounded more like late late model, like Avalon era, Roxy music before that. Right. It was more, a little slicker, uh, a little more synthesized. And I don't really mind that, but I thought it was going to be really dated pretty quickly. I love Roxy music, but that's my memory of Roxy music. It wasn't what I wanted to do. And I kind of made us strip everything back on the first record. We took all of Dave's effects away on his guitars. We took half of Steve's drum kit away. Matt wasn't allowed to play fretless basses on the record. Uh, Charlie, we got rid of the synthesizers and he played organ and piano, although he was thrilled to be playing Hammond. Um, you know, we kind of took everybody back and said, let's learn to play together in really simple terms. And that's what we could do. I think after that, we could do anything we wanted. Right. Especially after adding, after adding Ben and, uh, and Dan. You know, we could do, we could play, and it was just a matter of what we wanted to do at that point. And then it was just like, where's your imagination taking you? Well, we want to go do all this kind of stuff now. Uh, we, you know, we were dying to do it. We just couldn't quite do it at first. Now it's like, now we can. Um, and uh, it was also weird because I don't know if they faced as much. Uh, there was a lot of resistance to us changing at that point. You know, there was a lot of like, the label really wanted August and everything, or after August and everything after. <laughs> they wanted the second part of that record. They wanted T-Bone. And we were like, no, nope, we're going to go with Gil Norton. And uh, that didn't make anybody happy around those, that neighborhood. Um, but it was like where we wanted to go. I feel really good about that. Um, and it was invigorating and exhilarating to play like louder, faster, you know, sloppier music. Right. And, and have it just feel real natural and raw on that record. Right. And then to like experiment with all the cool shit we did on Desert Life and just like try and make quirky songs with weird sounds. And, you know, I just. I really loved the progression of being able to go anywhere we wanted, but we couldn't do that at first. We right. really needed to just learn to be a band. Not even, like, learn to play, but, like, learn to be a band. How to listen instead of just playing. You know, it was, uh, it was hard. It's fascinating for me to, like, listen to the demos from before the first record came out. Because, yeah, I mean, I think you made a wise decision in 
changing the sound and kind of stripping things back for the album. But I've always loved the demo version of Omaha, which is a more rocked up version. The guitar, ver- the kind of guitar end of the version? And it, yeah, and it kind of has like an 80s sound, which in a way has kind of come back into vogue in the last couple of years. Like it's almost like a Ryan Adams rock and roll type, you know, that album kind of sound to it. And I mean, have you ever played it that way again? Or, I mean, mm, like, what do you no, think of that version of it? No, because um, the thing that really on August in a lot of ways was that song. And figuring out how to like just breathe a song like that together, a song that's just that like, nuanced that we just kind of breathing the acoustic instruments together. I, you know, like we were so lucky uh, in the years leading up to getting the contract because we had Dave Bryson, who had his own studio and was such a good engineer and producer. Yeah. For like, for especially for that kind of stuff. He's just got a way of making things sound really good. And I think that that's a lot of what led to us getting signed and a lot of us getting signed in a huge bidding war where everybody wanted us because we had a billion songs and they all sounded great. And it was really easy for the record companies. You know, they didn't have to stretch to figure out what we could do. They could hear it all really clearly. Because Dave's production on those things is so good. But it wasn't really what I wanted for us as a band. Right. You know, I really wanted something more, I don't know, more emotionally tied together. More, just unconsciously tethered to each other in a way. And, and we, we, we really got to that on, on some of the things on that record. But especially on Omaha, I think we really... We stood around in a circle. I wasn't singing. T-Bone was kind of singing and playing some acoustic guitar. I was playing harmonica, I think. <laughs> yeah. And we just went around and around and around for hours on that song to get it to breathe the way it does. To get it just feeling all, like inhaling and exhaling together on those acoustic instruments. Just get it to feel that way. Um, and it was one of those kind of like, unquantifiable things that we got on that record um, that I'm really proud of, like that song especially. You know, one of my favorite songs on that record, and I'm not just going to walk through that record and ask you about songs, but one thing I did want to ask you about was Perfect Blue Buildings, because that's always meant yeah, a lot to me. Yeah, I was going to say that's the other one. And I know you've said that that was really hard to record and that you had a difficult time. I think you might have even had a breakdown while you guys were trying to record it because it was hard to get it right. And it's such a simple, delicate recording, you wouldn't necessarily think it'd be hard to capture, but like, what was it about that song that was hard to get? And well, it's like a to... breakdown in a song. It is like a, a mental breakdown is what's going on with that guy. He just like... He's falling asleep into this utopian coma dream kind of... Um, and he just wants to stay awake. He's so afraid of it, even though it seems like heaven. Like, if you think about it, and it just needed to have this throb to it. Yeah. And this sort of sobbing, almost, feeling. And, and uh, it needed to have a kind of restraint, and it needed to feel like it soared into these choruses in which he's describing something he's horrified by. Um, and I know there was just so much to it that was like, Again, that's the thing about that record. We're looking for some really unquantifiable things. It just felt a certain way, and that worked. And like the two things, I, I don't, I don't even like singing that song that much anymore. But, but I am proud of what it sounds like on that record and what we accomplished in getting it there. You know, it's just, it's got this real pain in it. That's just, it is very simple, but that's hard to get. You know, yeah. 
And for the longest time, and also I was really bad at being a band leader right then. I had no idea how to do it. And I'm trying to get this thing out of everyone without being able to tell them what it is. And I'm making everybody fucking miserable. And I mean, I think I'm singing that song and just slowly, at one point, I'm just sliding down a wall. That's the song that Charlie tried to quit in the middle of, I think. Or maybe it was me. I don't know. At some point on that record, everybody tried to quit. Because Charlie's yeah. playing is so well, beautiful in that song. Like, the organ part is so yeah. great. Um, it, yeah, no, he killed it. And, you know, I noticed you said that the guy in that song, like, do you feel like that's a song about a character? I mean, because it seems to be a song about someone who's dealing with addiction. When you listen well, to it. Well, no, it's, it's not addiction as much as it's like... Although addiction is, you know, people get addictions because they are... Something becomes more palatable to them than their life. Yeah. And, and facing life in that... The only way they want to face life is in this horrible wonderful uh, feeling, you know, that the drug gives them. And I think I was facing that, you know, in my head, which is kind of what it's about. It's about someone who just kind of, in a, in a, on one level, just wishes he was in this coma where he was just looking at these simple colors and yeah. beautiful, calm things instead of the blunt sort of horror of life. Right. You know, and that's what he, you know, and as much as, like, it sounds beautiful in those, you know, that the... The coma is his drug, and he's 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 yearning for it. But it's not it's not a drug as much as it's like get out of the blunt horror of like mental illness. Yeah, wherever that was, it's complicated sort of textured thing there. Yeah. Did you regret putting your address in the song? Nope. <laughs> I was leaving. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I mean, I didn't realize I was leaving yet. Uh, no, not really. I think that works really well. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be like a landmark in Berkeley names. now. I mean, I like. I tend to be really specific about names and places. I think they're really important to my writing. Maybe because uh, we moved around so much, I had a real grasp on the scope of the country, and I, I've always been very interested in that. Like, it is a big place in ways that people who come from other places don't always understand. Yeah. Um, America is a vast place. And we, you know, crossed the width of it as a kid, you know? And so places and the specificity of them have a lot of real resonance to me, and so do people. And I, it's funny, because early on, I was really cautioned against that. I got a lot of advice from people early on about, I shouldn't do that. Get rid of place names. Get rid of people's names, because it would uh, people would have a harder time uh, understanding it. They wouldn't. They wouldn't be as involved with my songs because they were by being specific. They excluded people. Uh, I thought that was kind of stupid, but and I think it is stupid. <laughs> you know, in the, I was that's dumb. The truth is, like, what you need to give people is something that really is real emotionally, whatever that is. Right. And that that will appeal to people. People are smart enough not to shut a song out of their heads because you say Houston and they're not from Texas. You know what I mean? Like people are much smarter than that. We're going to get back to the conversation here in a minute, but I just want to tell you about my new book. It's called Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It is out now at your favorite bookseller. Uh, It's a book about the rise and fall of the classic rock era. Artists of the 60s and 70s. I'm talking about Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, Neil Young. All these people that you've heard on Classic Rock Radio forever. 
they were codified uh, into this generation of bands that uh, was sort of frozen in ember for the longest time. And now we're experiencing them starting to retire or in some cases even pass away. And uh, I wrote a book about that. I wrote about my own sort of firsthand experience with that, as well as looking at the sort of historic and critical arc of this music. If you like this podcast, I think you're going to like the book. It's basically like listening to me talk, except you don't have to hear me yap. You just see my words on the page. It's funny. It's sad. It's exciting. It's depressing in parts, but I think it's a good read. So again, the book is called Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It is available now wherever you buy books. Okay, enough shilling. Let's get back to our conversation. I mean, I've always said this about your second record, that you're writing a very specific set of songs about being in a band that becomes huge and how do you deal with that. But when I heard that record, I it was like the soundtrack of my first semester of college. Like it was dealing with my loneliness being away from home. And that's how I connected with it. And like you being out on the road, those songs became about me being away from my friends. And I think that's what music listeners do usually is they take the details of a song and they kind of plug it into their own experience and that's how they connect with it emotionally but i think on a level i mean i think that's absolutely correct and i think on a level an album about uh going through that kind of life change and becoming famous and in a rock band is really at its core it's about how you cope with about changes in life and how they change the gravity of the world around you and how you cope with those changes when the world isn't the world you're used to and that does apply to college as much as it applies to you know, being a rock star or whatever, you know, that, that it's really about change and how you cope with change. And these things that we go through, none of them are that, I mean, in the details, maybe they're different between all of us, but those are just the details. Those are the details that give it grounding and give it reality. But the, the, the experience that's going on there really is quite shared among all of us. We all go through change. We all go through sadness. We all go through loss. My loss could be about one thing, your loss could be about another, but loss is loss. And that's what I think people were missing when they were telling me that, was that, like, the details are what give the world its grounding and its reality. That's why a writer will tell you about the room he's in, because just amorphous statements about the way I feel, they're just amorphous statements. The room I'm in affects the way I feel, because it gives you a place to picture while I'm feeling it, and those details matter. In, in whether it's writing a novel or an article or, you know, or a song. Yeah. These things all have, it's the reason plays don't, I mean, it's the reason a play can take place on a bare stage, but a movie needs to have the room. Yeah. You know, and you're going to put the books on the wall in the room because that all matters. You don't want to just see empty spaces all the time. Right. And, you know, it's like, that's the point they missed about this thing is that, that all you're doing is grounding it in reality. It's my reality. But what the people will get when they hear it is the shared experience. And I think that's, you know, and that's the thing about being in the music business or any kind of artistic. Everyone's always trying to give you advice on what they know, <laughs> in quotes, about right. what you're doing and how that you can make it better by doing it their way. It's like, eh. <laughs> Jesus, shut up. <laughs> There's a lot of that. I have, this, I have an A&R guy that I love at one point in my career. You know, I love this guy. He was as good an A&R guy as I've ever had. And he was in every possible way. He's been not screaming for me. He was great for a ton of bands. He's really good. And that's a rare thing. But the night I wrote uh, Long December, the first thing I did the next day was drive over to his office in the, in the clubhouse on, on, uh, on Sunset, the Geffen house. 
he, he played it for him in his office. And this is the best, maybe the most perfect song I've ever written. You know, it's just, I never get tired of it. I can play it every night. That's the only song I don't really care. I play it every fucking night. Yeah. Um, and it's a great song. And his comment to me upon hearing it was, I, yeah, really, I think I'm going to get rid of Hollywood. I'm like, what? He goes, this is Hollywood too much. I don't think that's cool. I just don't think that's cool. And I looked at him and I was like, man, you're the best guy. I love you as my NR guy. Don't ever say anything that stupid to me again. Please. Because <laughs> I'm going to lose all respect for you. Just don't ever do it. Right. And, uh, <laughs> but I mean, that's the only thing he ever said that was dumb. But I mean... You know, it was like it was the kind of that kind of comment. He never made another one like that or before that. It was just that one time. <laughs> but you know, even he, who was great at his job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite stories about the first record is that that Tupac was obsessed with it. Like, there's a story about him like being at a photo shoot and just wanting to hear August and everything after over and over again. And I'm wondering, like, if you, if you're aware of that and if you ever had a chance to meet him. Uh, you know, I'm not sure, because he was, you know, well, that's really cool to hear. He was, I mean, if I did, it would have been before you ever knew him as Tupac. Because he was in, he was one of the, like, sort of fringe members of Digital Underground's right. in the Bay Area. Do you remember that band? Oh, yeah. Humpty, Humpty Dance, you know, like, but they really made some great records. And in the years, they were one of my favorite bands in the years, like, uh, post De La Soul, and then the you know in New York the scene was De La Soul and the Jungle Brothers and the Native Tongue scene in New York, uh, Tribe Called Quest. But in the years after that, like about a year later, the Digital Underground guys started that that vibe, and he was one of the fringe members of that before he started doing solo stuff. And I remember being places around those guys, but I don't know if I ever actually met him. Okay. Which now that I hear that story is a real shame because you know. We were both like Bay Area guys, and, and I, you know, I, I really loved Digital Underground. Oh yeah, those years. Um, I'm wondering, like, you know, I mean, you've always been a huge music fan, and we've talked about you singing other songs in the middle of your songs, and and, and kind of, and you've done that throughout your career. Like when you hear a band like Gaslight Anthem, you know, quote round here, like on the Fifty Nine Sound. I mean, do you, yeah. how does that make you feel? I mean, it, it, there seems to be like a real continuum of music almost, like when these things happen. Well, I don't have a lot of experiences like that. That's really cool to me. I was really knocked out by then. And I, I heard things like that from guys in like the whole steady. And, you know, my friend Chris Caraba and Dashboard has often told me how important he was him. And of course, Rob, you know, Thomas came from the County Cross cover band, basically. Yeah. Um, but I don't have a lot of experience with that in my life. I, I don't think we were ever really cool that way, where a lot of people did. I, I do think that for musicians, we were a band a lot of musicians loved. Um, but I'm not sure that we were a band that they played once they were famous, because I don't think we were as cool, and I'm not sure it would have been cool to play our songs. I don't know. I, I have a lot of friends here, musicians, who love our band. And some of them definitely covered us. I know Dashboard did, and Chris did early on, and... Uh, I don't know. I don't have a lot of experience with stuff like that. I just never felt like we were cool that way. I mean, do you, did that, does that bother you? Like, did, do you have any feelings about that or like why it went down that way for you guys? Um, well, I think the first album was a little too big. You yeah. know, I tried to shut it down after round two. We were supposed to release Ranking next, and I told them we wouldn't do any more singles, no more videos. We wanted to stop because I thought it was getting too big already. 
And then they put out the DGC rarities record at a time when I was worried people were going to get too sick of counting crows. And so I didn't want to release ranking, which is a great song. Yeah. They had Einstein on the beach because I'd given them that demo for the rarities record. I mean, people never hear those rarities. They're never singles. But having given it to them, they released it as a single and straight to number one. So at a time when I was worried about, I was so worried about people getting sick about us that I didn't want to lose ranking. Instead, we got something that was so much worse than Einstein on the Beach. You know, and I, I just think that, I mean, there was just, by the time the next record came along, there was a huge backlash. Yeah. You know, I mean, the number one record is Recovering the Satellite. It's not even the first album reviewed in Rolling Stone that week. Buried in the back, it gets a mediocre review. Uh, I just think we stopped being cool. People started writing about people they I was dating or people they imagined I was dating. When we for about ten or fifteen years, all of our concert reviews were like, "Well, he supposedly was dating this actress, so this song's kind of bullshit." Right. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of stuff like that. Or we release an album as different as Recovering the Satellites, or an album as different from that as uh, this Desert Life. And the reviews would read, well, it's another album of mid-tempo rockers from County Crooks. Well, it's not really. It doesn't sound anything like the record before it. It was before it, you know? Yeah. But sometimes, you know, it just, there was about 15 years in there where it just was pretty unpleasant. Um, we just didn't get any good reviews, whether it was live reviews were about other stuff. There were no articles in Rolling Stone, or we never got invited back to Saturday Night Live. There was stuff like that that went on for a while. The weird thing is how it changed, because it came about because, like I said, I do think a lot of musicians, that we were really important to a lot of musicians, and some of them started coming out and talking about it. A lot of indie musicians at the time when blogs and stuff were really starting to become big. Places like AbsolutePunk.net was actually giving us pretty even-handed reviews, or uh, you know, and like alternative press would come out and it would be an article about Dashboard and Chris would really talk about Counting Crows and one of the guys, uh, Brendan Urie and Ryan Ross in uh, Panic at the Disco, they covered around here. And not only did they cover around here, but they covered the improv sections in the middle of around here, <laughs> in the middle of some other songs. And, you know, they would talk about it, too. And I remember seeing an article in Alternative Press once. It was a sidebar to a big article about, about Chris and about Dashboard. And the article, the question was, have we missed the boat on Counting Crows? It said, have they been cool all along and we just didn't think so? Right. And it was like all these, it was all on the, on the uh, indie blogs. It was the blogs and on the, on the Internet, not so much the big publications. But rock and roll, you know, cool comes from the bottom up in a lot of ways. And, you know, there was a lot of that. In the, you know, 2005, 2006, 2007, the years before uh, Saturday nights and Sunday mornings. It, you know, it was a long, it was weird. There's about 15 years after the first record, there's a bunch of people on there talking about how, like, no, you got it wrong. They're, they're our favorite band. Well, and I think there's also... And that seemed to affect some stuff, you know? And I think there's also a generation of people that, like, probably grew up with those records, and then they become writers and they become editors and they start writing about it like, i know that's true for me like i'm a i'm a music critic and i started writing about i've written about august and everything after and recovering the satellites and other records being real great records and formative records uh for their time and i think it's just almost like a, like a new generation comes in and it's like no this is great and also the fact too that you guys still tour and sound great 
and the songs are like cast iron strong like you can't deny the songs they're they're just still there and you guys sound really great playing them so i think that carries you through that what i do see a lot of at times is like people who love us writing an article about us but the article will begin with like a like a caveat to it you know like i know it's not cool but (laughs) hear me out right counting crows is great you know you may think there's you know like it's like they're apologizing yes they love our band but they do feel the need to apologize for it at first and to sort of couch it in, some, in terms of say, don't judge me, let me c- convince you. Uh, but, you know, it, you know, when you're saying don't judge me, it comes with an assumption that there's some judgment, you know. And, you, know that's a, it, you know, the truth is, like, you, just, you can't affect that stuff. There's nothing you can do. We didn't make any wrong decisions. We never sold out. We didn't do any of that stuff. It's just like sometimes you just, you're too omnipresent and everyone's sick of you. Right. You know, sometimes everybody, uh, people love your, you, you can love a band, and really love a band, and they're your band, and you love them. But then they get really big, and now you have to share your love with them, with that guy at the water cooler that you fucking hate. <laughs> that guy who's such a douchebag, and he never liked any of the cool music you liked, and now he likes them too. Right. And now you're going to share it with him? Fuck them. You know, it's like, it's just, it's, it's happened. It's, it's human nature, and I don't know. I, I don't love some of that. It definitely changed my perspective on, like, some of the respect I had for music criticism in general. I grew up really loving the whole concept of it. It's why I like to talk about stuff on podcasts. But I now like like specific writers, and I realize that as a whole, it can be a little more, uh, I don't know, there's a sort of a group think about it, about what's cool and what's not cool. And we ended up on the wrong side of that for a few years. Yeah, I, and we have lived long enough to get out from under it. But you know, sometimes you just live long enough and get old enough, and everybody loves you just for being alive. Well, and I also think too that yeah. there's a double-edged sword sometimes to be a critical darling because you can be you can come to rely on 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 press and not building a fan base that's going to stick with you no matter what. And I've from my observation, seeing bands, you know, even bands that have come out like in the last five ten years, bands that don't get a lot of press, but that can headline a 2,500 seat theater, you know, because they've done the work and because uh, people really love what they do and they're going to stick with them no matter what kind of record they put out. And that seems like the real kind of career that a, any band would want to have. And that's just down to your own, like, dedication, though, too, whether you're going to do that or not. That's a, you know, like, we were always going to keep playing and right. we were always going to play and work. And But it sure would be nice to be R.E.M. or Wilco, <laughs> you know, like, where it's just, man, they're, you know, they're they're utterly Teflon. They had long periods of like indie indie success and a build towards any mainstream success. Like REM, they made six independent albums. By the time they really blew up huge, you know, there's I know, I mean they were my favorite band. And there's there was like nobody's ever gonna say anything bad about them after that. They were they were just Teflon from it because they had but weird, you know, when you do it all on your first album I'm amazed that we survived. Because you yeah. think about the bands that had big first albums, and then just like nobody wants to hear about that shit anymore after that. You know, you don't want to talk about Hootie or uh, even Atlantis. You know, a massive first album like that. But it's like, where's everybody on her second album? Right. You know, it's, it's hard to survive a big first album. Is, you know, that's why I wanted to shut it down so badly. Yeah. I really wanted to stop it before it got to where like people just hated us. 
And like, yeah. I mean, like you despise Einstein on the beach, right? Because I mean, you've never played that live. I mean, do you just not no, like I don't that really song? despise it. It's not that. Um, I just, I, I'm frustrated because of what it did. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was afraid to put out Ranking. Now, Ranking is a great song. Uh, Einstein on the Beach is a, it's, it's just that it was never a song. To me, it was an exercise in writing a pop thing. It was a demo that we recorded, you know, before we were ever even signed, I don't think. It was never a song I even considered for a record. Because it was about being, it was, a, it was a clever statement. It was never a, like a meaningful song to me. I don't despise it at all. I think it's a great little pop song. Yeah. I just never meant for it to be where it ended up. I would never put it on a record. It just isn't that kind of a song to me. And I, I never intended to. And at a time when I knew our record was getting too big, the last thing I wanted was for that to come out. It's not even on the record. Yeah. You know, and it, and it just, it's not that I despise it so much as it, it's like this little thing I did that I liked for what it was, but we've never even played it. Like, we tried it once at a club gig, you know, before everything happened. And, you know, it was kind of a mess, and we didn't like it that much anyway, so we never played it again. And it was just this cool little fun pop demo that we'd done. It was fun to listen to sometimes. But that's all it was. Yeah. It's just that it, it became so important to so many people in a different way, and it destroyed the restraint I was trying to have at that moment. I mean, I was really trying to like, make that album calm down. And then that came out, went straight to number one. And and then everything on the record went on the radio more after that. It yeah. was just and the record just got so big. You know, and then we had to deal with the consequences of that. But I don't really despise it. I just you know, it's like uh a, a toy. I don't know how to say it. It's not <laughs> I, I don't despise it at all. It's just this nice thing that's not around here. Yeah. See I, on this tour at all. It's not ranking either, or Mr. Jones. It's 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 just not meaningful to me like those songs are. Like I pretty strict about the kind of things that go on records to me. I mean, it's just not up to that caliber. Yeah. Which is okay. I have lots of stuff I did when I was younger that's not good enough to be on a record. It's just most of it didn't like end up on the radio that much. Adam, I know you gotta get going, so I just want to say you've written a lot of songs that mean a lot to me, so thank you so much for that. Thank you, man. And uh, good luck with the tour, and good luck with whatever you do next. Don't get me wrong about all that. I'm really happy to be where we are. Like, it's pretty miraculous, and I'm really proud of that. You know, even with the ups and the downs, like, we got through the downs. Yeah. And, you know, we were pretty stubborn about that stuff. I'm really happy with, like, where the career has gone. You know, I just, you know, I'm realistic about the other stuff, too. Right. You know, there's always downs. But, I, you know, thanks so much for, I mean, I don't get to do many, like, long, thoughtful interviews. Yeah. I appreciate it. Well, yeah, and th- yeah. thank you so much, man. It's been a real pleasure. Absolute pleasure. No problem, man. All right, take care. All right, so that was me and Adam Duritz getting into it, talking about the career. You know, I think this probably comes across in the interview, but my sense is that if the publicist hadn't cued us <laughs> towards the end of that interview, that we would have talked for another hour or so. I mean, he was dialed in. I think he was really in to the conversation as I was. I mean, I was fascinated. And I could tell that he was in a mood to talk, and, and he had a lot of things to say. And uh, I loved the interview, but I kind of hope that I can get him on again. I, I, there's other things I want to talk about. I, I feel like he has more to say. So, Adam, if you're listening, if you ever want to come back on, I'd love to have you on. Of course, he has his own podcast, so if you want to check that out, you can go to the Counting Crows website, 
And I believe there's links on there to his own podcast. And that's a really great listen as well. As always, I got to give a shout out to the man who makes it happen, Derek Madden. Thank you, Derek, for putting it all together. Got to give a shout out to Josh Copperman, who wrote our theme song. Thank you, Josh. And of course, thank you to the most important people of all, the Celebration Rock listeners. Thank you for your support. Thank you for spreading the word. And thank you just for being here because we would not have a show without you people out there listening and paying attention and appreciating what we do. So thank you so much for that. And uh, thanks again for listening to this episode. And again, I feel so happy. This was such a fun episode to do. Uh, And I'm sure next week will be fun too. So guys, thanks again. We will talk to you again next week. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.